Welcome everyone to the Health, Happiness and Planet podcast. In today's episode, we're going to focus more on the topic planet, this time specifically on reducing cruelty towards our animals who share this planet together with us. I have the pleasure of introducing you to this amazing guest, Damien Mander. Damien is from Australia and is currently based in Zimbabwe. In year 2009, while traveling through Africa post-military, he was inspired by the plight of wildlife. Liquidating his life savings, the non-profit IAPF, which is known for the International Anti-Poaching Foundation, was established, protecting nature through their key program, Akashinga. Akashinga is a leader in innovative, scalable, sustainable and impactful people-centric conservation in Africa, revitalizing ecosystems in partnership with empowered communities. Akashinga connects, protects and restores threatened landscapes and coastal regions as a key mitigation towards climate crisis. Akashinga has a permanent operational presence in five countries with 9.1 million acres of wilderness under management, overseen by roughly 600 staff members. In year 2021, Akashinga co-founded the African Ecosystems Alliance, a 300 million US dollar initiative to engage local and indigenous communities as custodians of threatened wilderness areas prospering 184 million acres of threatened African landscapes by 2030. Damien is the winner of the 2019 Winsome Constance Kindness Gold Medal for Services to Animals and Humanity. Past recipients include David Attenborough and Jane Goodall. He was featured in James Cameron's documentaries The Game Changers and also on the National Geographic called Akashinga The Brave Ones, which speaks about his work with the women of Akashinga. Damien is also a speaker on National Geographic's Life Bureau and he is recognized by the Dutch government as a gender champion. I am thrilled to introduce you to this amazing guest, Damien Mander. Hello, Damien, and welcome to the Health, Happiness and Planet podcast. It's so great to have you here. John, thanks very much. Uh, thanks for having me on today and great to be here, mate. It's such a pleasure. Thanks again for your time. And one of the things I'm always asking my guests at the beginning of the episodes is about their passion. And therefore, how did you come across your passion and how did you get to do what you're doing today? I mean, my passion is looking after the planet or doing my part to look after the planet. And uh, I think uh, when I'm an old man one day and, and sitting back and looking uh, over my life and reflecting, I want to be able to say I played a part in protecting as much of the natural world as possible. And of course, this wasn't where I started. Uh, it took a long time to get here. And I suppose part of my uh, responsibility now is, is trying to help others, to motivate others to care about the planet. That's about it. Yeah, fantastic. I think it was more or less when you ended your military career in 2009 roundabout while you were traveling through Africa. You were quite surprised to see all those troubles that wildlife was having. Could you tell us a bit about that experience of what you've seen? What were the issues that were there? Yeah, so I mean, I spent nine years in the military. The last three years of, of that military service was in Iraq. And when I finished in Iraq, I didn't have a what next. I didn't know where I was going or what I was doing. I ended up in South America, actually traveling through South America. I spent a year there 
And uh, I'd gone from having a mission and a purpose and a very close group of people around me, like a brotherhood in the military, to not having any of that all of a sudden. And um, I found myself in a pretty rapid downward spiral of drugs and alcohol as I was traveling through South America through 2008. You know, I suppose this is one thing about me. I, I can make rapid changes in a very short space of time when they need to be made. I know that about myself. And I knew that I had to get out of South America and get out of the lifestyle that I'd, I'd gone into because it was going to finish badly. And uh, I'd heard about anti-poaching years before, just some random barroom chat in, in Sydney and decided to go to Africa and have a look, get involved. It was about having an adventure. It wasn't about trying to do something good. It was just about looking for the next adventure for me. I mean, we're all a product of our past. If I'd gone to Africa at the age of 20 trying to do anti-poaching, I probably wouldn't be where I am now. Uh, we're all a product of our past. And at three years in Iraq and my military service and just a bit of age and life experience had given me a different lens through which to see the world. And it was that lens which allowed me to perceive and understand the trouble that wildlife rangers were going through to try and do their job. I'd just come from Iraq working within a budget that was $600 billion a year. And we're fighting the arguments of old men for resources in the ground and, and dotted lines on a map. And here we are, we see these rangers fighting for the heart and lungs of the planet and they didn't have anywhere close to the resources we had. I was traveling around to different nature reserves and seeing rangers without boots, rangers without uniforms, rangers without any sort of first aid kit. It really made me think about our priorities as a civilization, as a species. We continuously want to take and give very little back. And these rangers were there trying to give something back and protect what it is that so many are trying to take. And of course, alongside that was seeing what was happening to animals. As a former hunter who never hunted again after Iraq, because I knew what it was like to be hunted, seeing animals like elephant and rhinoceros being killed by paramilitary-style units crossing international borders using automatic weapons and high-caliber rifles to kill an animal the size of a truck for something you can hold in one hand, a tusk or a horn, so it can sit on someone's desk in the other side of the world. It just it didn't make sense. I wanted to do something about it. I wanted to try and, and do anything I could. And the only two things I had in this world uh, was a certain skill set, which the military had, had given me and the experience from Iraq. And the other thing was money. I'd started investing in residential property at a very young age. Australia is a well-paid military service. And of course, my time in Iraq was very well-paid, well-financially rewarded. And I wanted to take that money and turn it into something decent. I wanted to turn it into something that I could be proud of, a new mission, a new purpose. And that's when uh, the IAPF was found back in 2009. And I liquidated a property portfolio to do that. I burnt the boats. I left myself with no option other than to make this work. That's amazing. And at least with that decision that you made, you know that there was no turning back. There was just a one-way street and it had to work. I've never really been a guy that does things in halves. And uh, there was a point in my life where I made a decision that this is what I want to do. And I, I didn't know how to do it. I didn't even know what the letters NGO stood for non-governmental organization. It's a charity. I didn't even know what those letters stood for when I set up this organization. I didn't know how to write a constitution for an organization. I didn't know how to do all the legal work, how to do all the design for posters, for fundraisers, how to go out and scope agreements with governments. How to, I didn't know anything about conservation at all. I had to learn everything from the beginning, but what I had is, is a desire 
to protect nature and that desire was enough to drive me to learn all the other things that made it work you know my background is counterinsurgency warfare it's not writing legal documents it's not figuring out how to track through the african bush or, or what what to do with an, an elephant or a lion charges you it's not speaking local languages it's you know the skills that i i, ca- I came from from the military were a great core but there was so much more that had to be learned and to you know especially speaking to where we are today as the ceo of an organization that employs almost 600 staff there's been quite a long road and quite a lot of not only organizational evolution but personal evolution you definitely become a new version of yourself through that journey yeah it is and i often say you know i mean the nature that we're trying to protect has had five billion years to evolve And evolution is the cutting away of the pieces that don't work and retaining the bits that do and continuing to grow. And as humans in our life, we don't have five billion years. We have a handful of decades or just a bit more to do as much as we can in the short time that we have on this planet uh, to evolve, to continuously evolve, continuously self-interrogate who we are and what we do and why we do it. Uh, and to take those lessons and not be afraid of them and turn them into a better version of ourselves. Yeah. Would you call that poaching is like an organized crime, similar to the drug dealers, similar to gun trafficking and, and that kind of uh, problems that one has? Yeah, there's two sides to poaching. One is subsistence. So it's people that are just trying to live. They're trying to survive. And this is uh, people that are coming in and, and poaching for bush meat. Uh, they're trying to put food on the table. And, you know, increasing poverty, not only across Africa, but across the world is going to place an increasing demand on natural resources. And animals are unfortunately one of the victims of that demand and of that poverty that we do see across the world in so many places. And then uh, the other side is the organized crime side. These are the, the syndicates that are responsible for trafficking anything from rhino horn to, to elephant ivory to animal skins to commercial scale uh, bushmeat operations. Uh, and, and for them, animals is just another currency. Uh, alongside guns, drugs, human trafficking, it, it's just another currency for them to exploit. And so these are some of the threats uh, and the institutions that we're up against. It's not uncommon for us to have threats against our life. I mean, we had a ranger shot uh, only recently. Fortunately, she was okay. We've had attempted assassinations on some of our staff members. Uh, this is real. And we, we see an increasing amount of people across the world that are involved in environmental protection or reporting on environmental issues who have threats on their life who are killed. So it's an extremely dangerous job, especially for the rangers that are out there on the front lines uh, or for the people that poke their heads up too far above the horizon. Fortunately for us, up until uh, you know a few years back as an organization, we've, we've scaled very quickly over the last three years. Up until a few years ago, we could have been described as a bus crash organization. If Damien gets hit by a bus, then what's going to happen? But now we've built out such a robust team of people across the world, uh, a management team, that sit at this round table where we make decisions and, and work with our teams on the ground to implement those decisions. So, you know, to a, a large degree, um, I've sort of made myself expendable. Fantastic. The first time for me when I got to know about your organization, that was the Netflix documentary from The Game Changers. Okay. Would you say that that was like the point when you were seeing more movement and more, I would say, support for your organization? Or was it already running well before The Game Changers came? I mean, it's a Game Changers, they came and filmed, I think, back in 2015. And when did Game Changers air? It was, it was maybe two years ago, three years ago. 
It took us a decade to become a million dollar a year organization. That tripled the next year, tripled the year after. And then this year we will probably be somewhere around the, the 13 to $14 million mark. So that's going from 1 million to $14 million a year as a charity has happened over the last four years. So there's been a lot of things that have contributed to that. We changed the way that we do business. We rebuilt the organization to support the way that we operate in the field. A lot of our work now is achieving social impact. So we have a nature-based outcome. So we're working with local and indigenous communities to address their needs because poaching and conservation is, is not just a conservation issue. It's a social issue. And when we have social impact, we have a conservation outcome. So... And of course, at the center of our social development strategy is the empowerment of women in these rural communities. Uh, and so for us as an organization that was founded by you know, myself and, and then with initial board members that came on, were, we all had a special forces background. And here we were eight years later starting to implement programs that were largely centralized around women's empowerment. So we had to rebuild our organization, which required an independent gender mainstreaming audit to be done to allow us to change our policies and procedures, our board makeup, our diversity throughout our management structures and on our boards. And of course, how we build out careers for women to be able to move into management in an industry where they've been given such little opportunities to gain the experience necessary to be managers. This combined with building out a much more robust platform as an organization, our databases, the way that we speak to and manage donors, the way that we narrow in and, and focus on which particular donor groups we're going to go for. As a conservation organization, we're already in the smallest bracket of philanthropic funding on the planet. And in the United States, which is the largest philanthropic market in the world, $449 billion that's given every year to charity, only 3% of that goes to animal causes and environmental causes and conservation. So... We have to be very focused about how we go about fundraising and, and I suppose evolution as an organization has allowed us to not only attract and retain some really good donors along the way, but um, to make it more attractive to a wider audience as we go forward. Yeah, exactly. And I think for a lot of those kind of organizations, or at least the people who I came in contact with, they were always a little bit hesitant because they're like, well, you never know what an NGO is doing because they had bad experiences with other companies who do yeah. not use the, the money properly. And yeah. sometimes there was like this lack of transparency. And I think that transparency yeah. is one of the things that, that we can see in your organization. I've been already supporting it for a while. And that's why I'm always very happy because I see the thing that is happening. It's not like a black hole that you just send money to a specific organization and you're still un clear of what is really happening with the money yeah how do you also ensure that transparency so we've got a very good scientific team as well as a financial team that supports the organization so we're moving to a goal of ours as an organization to have 20 of our operational budget spent on monitoring and evaluation that's great on the reporting side but what it actually does is having the data of what we're doing and where we're doing it it allows us to be the most effective we can be with donors money in putting limited resources in the most effective places i mean we're patrolling areas the size of a small country so knowing either where a problem is or where a problem is going to be or where wildlife herds are or animals are moving uh, so we can be there to protect them or what impact we're having at a community level you know if we put a borehole here for water in the community how many families is it going to service versus if we put one over here if we rebuild a school here how many students are going to go through there in the next decade Uh, scholarships to children in schools in Zimbabwe. We currently have 200 scholarships. We want to be able to track 
what those students are doing and, and make sure that when they finish their school, that there's additional opportunities created for them. So there's a lot that needs to go into monitoring and evaluation of the projects that we do. And it's not always the sexy part, but it's a really important part of what we do. And it should be a really important part for every organization. The other side of that is making that information available to the public, to our donors, so they can see what we're doing. They can see where their money is going. I think for us last year, 9% of our total income was spent on overheads. And that was covered by one donor who specifically wanted to cover our overheads. So effectively, 100% of every other donor's funding went straight to the field. But without that donor, 91% of or 91 cents in every dollar would have gone to the field. And that's something I'm really proud of. And to be able to show that reporting through our our financial and accounting team, and then to have independent audits done uh, on our work and to have those displayed on on websites like GuideStar and Charity Navigator, where we have the highest rating in the US on GuideStar is to have platinum rating. Only 0.25% of charities achieve that. So all of this is what creates confidence in in investors, in donors, in the work we do, and and hopefully uh, the results on the ground as well enable us to grow. So Damien, one of the programs that you have within your International Anti-Poaching Foundation is called Akashinga. And what does the word Akashinga mean? So Akashinga is the name that the women gave to themselves. It means the brave ones in Shona dialect, which is one of the languages in Zimbabwe. And the women that we selected for this initial anti-poaching unit, which was going to become the first all-female anti-poaching unit in the world, They were all survivors of sexual assault, domestic violence, AIDS, orphans, single mothers and abandoned wives. And so they came from a very tough background. What we didn't realize when we set that that selection criteria is that we were actually getting the toughest in society. And I think that we put them through uh, was nothing compared to what they'd come from or stood to go back to. And so that actually became uh, one of the most important factors in uh, our success. Uh, I mean, it's a tough job being a ranger. The two things that we need are character and spirit. The rest we can train. Uh, and these women had character and spirit. They had it in, in spades. And the reason we set that criteria is when I first came to Zimbabwe, it had the lowest life expectancy in the world for a woman. Uh, it was less than 40 years of age. So we thought if this project goes beyond just having 16 women that were the first unit to be formed, let's create opportunities for those that need it and deserve it the most. Amazing. So it's definitely a win-win situation. It's actually a triple win situation. You're supporting the woman in their situation. They are supporting the environment plus also their local communities. Absolutely. In a way, you get to spend the same dollar three times as a donor, as an investor, first on women's empowerment, second on community development, and third, the outcome of what it was initially intended is conservation. Yeah. And, and, you know, I often say we're not necessarily a women's empowerment organization. We just found a, a better way to do business. And that was centralizing the strategy around the empowerment of women. It allowed us to scale because it went from us being inside a reserve, looking out and trying to defend that reserve to being outside the reserve, shoulder to shoulder with the community and having a community that saw all these social impact programs and wanted to help preserve nature because it was all interlinked. We'd built a holistic model with women, of course, at the center of that model. Yeah. And in your past, when you were in the military, you were probably most of the time uh, working with men. And how is your experience now working with women and how they deal with certain situations when they're out there as rangers? I come from the Ultimate Boys Club, uh, which is special operations. I know there's a lot of clubs around the world you can pay a subscription to, but you can't pay for that one. And uh, I'd never worked with women 
if I'm going to be honest, when I was in the Navy as a diver and they were doing studies on our unit to try and integrate women into the ranks, we took a, a kind of locker room vote and said, you know, we would rather not have women working alongside us. And looking back on that now and that mindset, there was nothing nothing else other than ego and insecurities around making that decision. And looking to where I am now, almost two and a half decades later, I've almost become the student in seeing how women operate, in particular in a law enforcement environment. And I've just come back from the US. I've spent two months there lecturing around the country. And uh, I like to overlay the filter of you know an increasing antagonism that's happening between uh, the public in, in many states in, in the United States, states and cities. And... Um, this militarization of the police force that's been going on. And then we sort of had a blank canvas when we started Akashinga. So you can't just go into a city and say, we're going we're gonna to sack all the men in the police force and replace them with women and see what happens. But we had a blank canvas because we had this vacant reserve. Nobody was protecting it or doing anything with it. It was going to be lost to poaching and deforestation. So we had an opportunity to go and start from scratch, from ground zero with women and see what happens. Uh, and it turns out that the the benefits were just you know far exceeded anything that we could have even scripted in the beginning. You know, having come from that military background where you are, you trained to go out and look for a fight and to finish it. Women have a very different set of values uh, when it comes to law enforcement. I think women seem to naturally de-escalate tension in in conflicting situations uh so we actually cut our core operating budget by two-thirds we stopped spending money on helicopters and drones and canine attack teams and bigger fences and more guns and and we started spending on hiring more women out of the almost 1200 arrests that have been made to date there's only been shots fired a couple of times uh i don't know if that that well i can i can assure you that would have been the case uh had it been um, men or had those roles been reversed for us to have an idea of how these women work and how do they get those poachers, because I think many of us cannot picture it. How does that work if the poachers are caught while they're doing the act of catching an animal? Or is it usually after something has happened and they can catch this person? Or is it before they actually are preparing to do their act? Could you give us a little insight on how that works and, and how they approach their job? Yeah, there's a lot of different ways to try and stop a crime. And we encounter many different kinds of crimes in what we do. Some involved with just people from the local communities, some involved in organized crime and at different levels as well. You've got the person on the ground doing the poaching and then you've got the syndicates above that are doing the trafficking and uh, command and control of, of their ground level operations. So the best tool we have in our box is information, being able to access information on illegal activities. You know, we, with over 9 million acres now under contract uh, in partnership with local communities to help manage and look after, these are the areas, these are the size of small countries. They're such huge areas. So we can either walk around these areas hoping to bump into a problem or we can go exactly where that problem is going to be. And for that, you need information or intelligence from local communities. To be able to get information, you need good relationships, which means it's not us versus the community, it's the community with us. They see the overall benefit of the work that we're doing and the, the conservation and community aspect of that holistic model. I mean, doing an operation, it could happen in any number of ways. We could have rangers that are walking through the bush, they find tracks. 
they start following those tracks, uh, they lead to poachers. And rangers, when they're looking at the tracks that are on the ground, they can determine the age of those tracks. So if they look at the tracks and they're three days old, they're like, okay, so let's go and see what happened or where they went. Uh, but if they look at those tracks and they're three hours old, they know they now have a hot pursuit on and they will start tracking those poachers with the anticipation of being able to capture and apprehend them. Uh, it may lead to a poacher's camp, so where they've set up and they're operating from. If they're doing commercial bushmeat poaching, they're going out each day, they're hunting, they're bringing the meat back, they're drying it, getting ready to take it all out. If they're doing ivory poaching, they're going out and killing elephants each day and then bringing the ivory back to these camps. And so we can set up what we call an OP, an observation post, or an ambush uh, around that camp. And when they come back in, we can move in and apprehend. Other people that are living in these communities that give us access to information, also having women employed in our ranks. So women are plugged into the community at household level. And when you gain access into a community at household level, you gain access to a lot of information. And that information and how it's managed, it's, it's probably, I would say, that the most laser-focused part of what we do. Um, there's so much else to what we do other than just the anti-boaching and the law enforcement side. You've got the monitoring and evaluation of the, the, the scientific side of what we're doing, the firefighting, the looking after the animals themselves when there's something sick or an, uh, injured, monitoring water, um, doing healthcare, education, clean water, local development uh, in these communities, plus reserve management itself, even crisis management when we have natural disasters. There's, there's so much that comes with managing a reserve other than just the law enforcement component. But when we do get information on, okay, let's say there's someone preparing to go in to poach this may be information that was gathered at the bar last night it may be information gathered from a neighbor it may be information gathered from one of the people that we've managed to insert into the poaching gang uh, a former poacher that's been turned there's a number of different ways that you can access that information and what's going on depending on how the operation is unfolding it will depend on how many updates you get along the way so we, we may have someone who's undercover working within these units who may not be able to get to their phone and send a text message out and say they're going in or they're moving so being able to monitor as much as we can the people our most important asset um, our staff where they are and what they're doing and being able to be there at the right time with backup teams to intercept or make an arrest of course opposite to the drug trade where the damage is done at the end of the trail, when you end up with, I mean, in the US, someone dying of a drug overdose every five minutes now. Um, in the wildlife trade, the damage is done at the beginning when an animal is killed. So we have to be right 100% of the time. Poachers have to be right once. Uh, so, you know, we do everything we can to try and stop poachers before they go in and do their job. And so now we, we're not right all the time. Sometimes they've gone in, they've killed an animal. It may be you know, that we, we see vultures circling over a carcass. It may be that someone is selling commercial quantities of bushmeat in the communities. It may be that someone is trying to deal a shipment of elephant ivory. We intercept. We work with the local authorities to go and intercept uh, these deals, or these sales, or the movement of these products. Wow. I'm just trying to picture the landscape. If you would see the poachers, those that you were able to identify and catch, do they live usually in specific areas where one knows that these areas are more poachers or are they just scattered around the different villages and just living together with the communities as well? How does that usually look? We definitely have hotspots that we monitor, certain towns and cities, and of course, being in the capital here in, in Harare. When I am in Harare, it's a hotspot for people moving money, people moving wildlife products, because this is the capitals are generally where the wealth is. Uh, and then, of course, they have their people around the country that are operating uh, as part of these syndicates that are going and doing the poaching. 
So also to the, the mapping of our data and where we've had past incidents, um, where we know that there's people of interest and being able to build out the networks around those people and allows us to understand, you know, if we were to take this person out of this network, how does that fragment all the other people underneath them? Uh, when I say take out, I mean to arrest, apprehend and imprison. And so you can look at what effect your actions are going to have before you actually take those actions. Yeah. And what are the main issues that you are facing at the moment? And what gives you hope? As a nonprofit organization, we, of course, always looking to raise more funding, more capital. Uh, at the moment, we're in the process of setting up a fund that is, is specifically focused on partnering with local and indigenous communities across Africa to help protect all the land that was historically used for trophy hunting. Trophy hunting is different to poaching. Trophy hunting is where someone pays to come over and shoot an animal and take it home and they hang it above the fireplace. There's a lot less people that want to come and do that now. Uh, you've got a generation raised on social media that just doesn't want to fly across the world so they can shoot an animal and put it on their wall. So that's less customer. You've got less product because there's so many animals have been poached or shot. So, and then you've got tougher regulations separating the customer from the product. And I, I don't like to call an animal a product, but that's what it is. And if you're going to look at this as a commercial transaction. And so all the, the communities that have historically used trophy hunting as an economic model to motivate those communities to look after these areas and preserve these wildlife populations, they no longer have that income. So what we are doing is coming in and, and partnering with these communities and say, listen, we can put the same amount or better into these communities as what trophy hunting did. And if we can do that, can we have a long-term agreement such as the trophy hunters used to have? And some of the, the longest agreement we have at the moment is 50 years. But there's 350 million acres across the continent that were historically set aside for trophy hunting. That's more than twice the size of Texas. Okay, so there's a lot of land that is currently extremely vulnerable to being lost, to human encroachment, to agriculture, to deforestation. And so what we want to do is raise the capital to go in and secure these long-term leases in partnership with communities and then work with them on the social development programs that will motivate conservation at scale. We have an ambition to have 30 million acres uh, under contract ourselves by the end of the decade with the alliance that we've formed, uh, which will be funded by the, uh, the fund that I mentioned, to have 60 million acres, which will positively impact 184 million acres across the continent within the landscapes that they sit. So raising the capital um, for that fund is my primary focus at the moment and expanding our work. Of course, every every contract we sign um, and every whether it's a million acres, two million acres, that we're now the joint custodians of in helping to protect alongside the local communities uh, who are the traditional owners of, of these lands. I mean, it, I'm, I'm an animals person. Every contract we sign is, is thousands, millions of, of animals that will get to live out their life within these areas, within the trees that are not being chopped down, the, the grasslands, within the rivers that flow through them. And of course, the ecosystem services that these places return to us. We are accelerating into the sixth mass great extinction on this planet. For the first time in history, it's a human-created phenomenon. We're talking about all different ways to try and stop this and prevent this and offset carbon and do that uh, or suck carbon out of the air. We have a system that's just spent five billion years getting it right. It's called nature. And if we can just look after nature and allow it to do what it does best, which is to help regulate this Earth's climate, then we're going to be far better off as a species. I don't want to be part of a generation that defines our failure. 
as a species. I want to be part of the generation that leaves this place better than we found it. We have a, a hell of a fight in front of us. And uh, you ask me what gives me hope. What gives me hope is that I think there is enough good people out there willing to do the right thing and to turn the ship around. I think we're a species that responds really well when we push far enough into a corner. I don't think as a global community we understand how far into that corner we are at the moment. But what gives me hope are the people that we work alongside within this industry, within other sectors that are starting to make changes. They're starting to realise that you can't just keep taking and taking and taking. And my philosophy in life, for what it's worth, is, is just whatever you're doing, um, have a good time and don't be an asshole. Okay, whether you're being a good CEO, whether you're running a, a non-profit, whether you're trying to be a good dad, whatever it is, just you know, have a good time. Uh, and if you're having a good time, it means you're doing it right and you're getting it right. And don't be an asshole in the process. You know, you don't need to take and step on others to get what it is you, you're after. You can bring people along uh, for the journey. Damien, you've been already now a couple of years vegan. And what was the point when you said, it's now time for me to not to put any more animals on my plate? It was a lot of internal conflict before I reached that decision. And... I came up with so many excuses, you know, all the same shit that we always hear. These animals were bred for us or, you know, cows are not going extinct, chickens are not going extinct or we need animals to get our protein. And like, to be honest, it was all bullshit. Uh, even to the point of telling myself that I'm doing so much for the planet that I, I've got these credits to go and do something bad. And uh, eventually it just became too heavy a burden to carry on my shoulders, on my conscience. I was walking around the bush all day protecting one group of animals and coming home and not only killing another animal but paying someone else to do that for me so I could then eat it that night. You know, paying the meat industry as the most destructive industry there is on this planet. Uh, and as a conservationist, I, I didn't want to be a part of that. And the meat industry is responsible for more deforestation than any other industry on this planet. It's responsible for the death of 100 billion animals across the planet in our oceans uh, each year. I don't want to do that. I don't want to pay someone else to kill something that can't defend itself. And as an alpha male who used to eat his steak cooked blue, you know, run it through a warm room and that's, that's done. As an alpha male, I think we're the ones that should be standing up and, uh, and protecting those that can't defend themselves. And animals sit right at the top of that list for me. So there's definitely similarities between having somebody do the poaching for you so you could have the trophy on your desk or hanging on your wall somewhere or paying somebody to put that meat on your plate. Yeah, sure. I think if you're talking about a tusk or a horn, it's more of a luxury where so many people around the world think that we need meat for our health or to survive or to get protein. You know, we're in, in actual fact, as a global community, we're digging the grave of our civilization with our appetites. It's unsustainable, it's unnecessary. Uh, we can do more by doing less. Stop eating so much, stop being lazy, yeah. uh, stop killing shit that can't defend itself. Get up off your ass, go out, exercise, change your life, turn it around. For me, I would say the most significant thing I've ever done in my life is to stop eating animals. In the morning when I wake up, before I've done anything, I'm already doing the best thing I can for myself, for others, and for this planet, just in the choices that I make and what I take home to the dinner table. And it's not carcasses. Yeah. That's so powerful. 
it's so crazy that it's at the end so connected because if you're doing something good for your health you're automatically doing something good for the planet as well and that comes almost in any topic i have seen so far if it's what you eat if it's uh, ingesting yeah. all that meat that is making you sick and it's making our environment sick or if it's all those products that you're buying cosmetics or body care and all the lotions as they say you know if you cannot eat it then you should not be putting it on your skin yeah they all have so many toxins in there and all the plastics that they're using it's all at the end damaging the environment and it's also damaging us so we started researching what are the products that i could use at home what are the things that i can put on my skin and so forth and all the things that were really good for me were at the end of the day the same things that were also good for the planet because we are not putting more toxins into the rivers yeah. and oceans from all those products we're not buying all these plastic containers and and so forth. That was also, I think, just like with you as well, probably one of the best decisions that my wife and myself have done was yeah. to turn vegan. And we've also seen the changes on our health. Therefore, also my question to you, what have you seen different on your health and the way how you feel by not eating meat anymore? I mean, the, the main thing is just how I go about my life and I live my day and how I feel. I feel as though this huge weight has been lifted off my shoulders. And I have a purpose and a passion that drives me to protect animals and to protect the environment. And that, I don't know what that does to my overall well-being, but I'm, I'm a happy person. I'm driven. I'm motivated. I don't go to work because I don't have a job. Who I am is what I do. There's no separation between that. You know, you'll be here all the time when you find your passion. You never work another day in your life. Well, it's true. I feel proud as a dad to have my son my kids look at me and, and be able to tell their friends about what I do and, and be that uh, role model in their life in that capacity to be a person that can motivate others, other children, other people around the planet to give a shit about animals, to give a shit about nature. Because if we don't, then they're going to be paying the ultimate price for that. And it's not our parents' fault and it's not our children's responsibility. It's all of our responsibility to fix this problem that we've got ourselves into. And I, the simplest thing that we can all do is make the decision of what food we put on our dinner tables and in our mouths. We can do more for this planet just in making that decision than anything else that we could collectively do. Every one of us, when we are small and we are children, it's not our instinct to go out there and kill an animal because we grew up with looking at books from farms and saying, oh, look, that's a cow, that's a chicken, that's a pig, yeah. and the pig has a yeah. name. And at some point of time, they don't realize that whatever is coming on their plate, it's actually a pig or a chicken or a cow because it's more seen like a product that, oh, we're just getting that piece of steak from the supermarket. And they say, oh, that's a steak. But yeah. they have no clue that the steak is linked to that cow that they were just looking in their book. Yeah. and they see it as a product and that's why i think a lot of that factory farming they do not even allow that people are able to enter to see what's going on in there they're not allowed to film it because they do not want to let down the veil so that uh, people or youngsters yeah. or children see what's happening because probably already a great percentage of people will switch from today to tomorrow say i'm not doing this anymore because yeah. people are just not yeah. aware about how is that product getting to their plate yeah, I mean, the separation between product and market is phenomenal. And the information is there. It's just people choose not to either see it or acknowledge it. And I think if more people made a conscious decision to acknowledge where our food comes from and the process it takes to get that food to our dinner tables, then why would anybody in their right mind or with any level of conscious want to do that? Yeah. 
And I think just as there is racism or sexism, there's also the speciesism yeah. where people say, oh, I'm an animal lover because I have a dog or I have a cat at home. But at the yeah. end of the day, what makes all the other animals different to a dog or to a cat? Yeah, I mean, if somebody owns a dog or a cat, one knows how these creatures communicate with us. One knows that just by looking at them in the eyes that they're already telling yeah. you what is it that they want. And if you need something and you can communicate with them just by looking at them, it's like they say like looking at someone at a person or at an animal in their eyes it's like looking into their soul yeah when, when i look into an animal's eyes i can feel what they're feeling and i do not even want to know how it must feel when they are in a slaughterhouse and i think most people will not be able to do that yeah i mean the, the, the only difference in the capacity for animals to suffer from species to species is the difference that we allow our own minds to accept i'm sure if you went and stuck a knife into your leg or into a bear, or into a dog, or into a pig, it would all suffer in the same capacity. Uh, there's an old Indian proverb, actually, and it reminds me of what you were just saying there. And it says, um, at the end of our life, when we die, and we go to cross into heaven, there's a bridge that we must cross. And at the head of that bridge is every animal we've encountered in our lifetime. Those animals, based on how we have treated them, will decide who gets to cross that bridge and who does not. I think that's pretty powerful. And I think it just speaks to, to how we've lived our lives and what we've done with our lives and how we've either impacted suffering on others or how we've stopped suffering for others. Yeah, so true. At the end, the pain of suffering that we are producing, independent if it's a person or an animal, it's still measured as suffering. And at the end, yeah. we're all nature, we're all family. And if we are going to do this to someone or... Well, someone I always think to myself as humans as well as animals, then at some point of time there is going to be, well, perhaps even payback. Yeah? Because I think that anything that you do bad in life, it will somehow get back to you. And I've experienced a couple of things in my mm -hmm. uh, young life that when I did something bad to somebody, at some point of time it always came back to me. So I'm just yeah. uh, right now thinking like the first 20, 25 years of my life that I was eating a lot of meat that I hope I will somehow balance the scale a bit by the end of, of my lifetime once uh, I, I support a vegan plant-based movement and, uh, and able to really open people's eyes to go this direction. And it's really for their own health, for our environment and for our future generations to come. And I have one final question. And this one I'm very curious about because a couple of weeks ago, which is from the recording that we're having today, that was on June 21st, you had a conversation with the iconic Dr. Jane Goodall. And I was unfortunately not able to attend because I was traveling. But could you tell us some takeaways that you have gotten from this conversation that will stay in your heart? So, I mean, it's always a great privilege to chat with Jane. And uh, as far as rock stars go on this planet, she's at the top of the list for me. And I, I said the night before when I was with my fiance in a taxi in, in New York City, I said, uh, if I had the opportunity tomorrow to speak to any other person on the planet, it would still be Jane Goodall. She's an amazing woman. And, and I think what she teaches us is that looking after animals and nature is not a career. It's not a pastime. It's not a hobby. It's a commitment. And it's a lifelong commitment. And I think we all need to take that on board as a lesson in how we can have lifelong impact in how we lead our lives. Is it positive or is it negative? And doing positive things don't give us credits to go and do negative things. It's just a matter of interrogating ourselves. Who are we as individuals? What is our purpose here? And, and is that purpose actually leading to something good in humanity and nature or something that's negative? 
Wow, that's so powerful. And if there's one thing you would wish the listeners from this podcast to do as an actionable step at the end of this episode, what would that be? I suppose my message is, is to all those people out there that already get it, that already understand what needs to be done. Keep having your conversations, keep getting better at your conversations. Uh, it may feel like you're talking to a brick wall sometimes, but the truth is accumulative. And once the shutters come up with the people you're speaking to, they'll never go down again. Yeah. So keep having those conversations. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Damien. And one final point, where can my listeners find you? Jean, yeah, thank you very much, mate. Uh, www.iapf.org. Uh, and very soon we'll also have the recording of the Jane Goodall talk uh, posted up there. Oh, fantastic. Perfect. I'll be putting all of your links and also where to find your organization for all the listeners to take a look and hopefully they will also support. I will also put the link to the video that you have done for National Geographic, which was, I think, a 16-minute video yeah. on those powerful ladies who you are supporting and training. And I thank you so much for all of this that you're doing for us, for the animals, for the people, the communities, and also for the future generations to come. Your work is just amazing. Thank you so much, Damien. Awesome. Thank you, Jean. Thank you. Man. Thank you. Bye-bye. What an incredible conversation with Damien. I hope this episode has made you curious about his organization. I encourage you to look at the documentary The Game Changers, where Damien is one of the persons being featured in this documentary. Further, I would like to motivate you to watch the fabulous TED Talk where he describes the defining moment where he was in Zimbabwe and encountered a severely injured buffalo. I will allow Damien to tell you his story through his TED Talk. After that incident, he had put all of his investments and his energy into establishing the International Anti-Poaching Foundation. Damien felt it was his responsibility to speak on behalf of those who never could. He wants to be there to protect our voiceless friends from suffering. They, like all other living creatures, share this beautiful planet with us and he feels the responsibility to have done everything he could to leave this planet a better place and reduce the suffering of our animals. Just as there should not be any sexism, racism or anything that causes separation, there should also be no speciesism, where we as humans select some animals who we will be kind to, share our home with them, our bed and our meals together, and on the other hand, we pay a butcher or a large animal agriculture to kill other innocent animals who endure stress, suffering and a cruel death. We as consumers have the free power to decide what systems we want to support with the choices we make. Today we have proven data that humans thrive much better, live healthier, longer and happier without eating our fellow friends who we share this planet with. I am confident that this is not a coincidence that by not making animals suffer and endure stress and pain, it just happens to make us healthier. If you're looking for ways to challenge yourself and go out of the comfort zone and test new things that can make you feel happier and healthier, then think about what animal suffering processes you are supporting with your money and consciously decide how will you reduce your contribution to that. Please share your experience and tag me on Instagram. My account is called health underscore happiness underscore planet. 
In the show notes, you will find all the links on where to find Damien and his outstanding work and how to make a contribution to his amazing initiatives. This podcast was sponsored by Wave Business Excellence Footprint, an online training company that cares about your career development, your personal development, and the well-being of this planet we call home. On our website, www.wave-bef.com, you will find online courses designed for managers and employees who strive to become the leaders of tomorrow in the corporate world. I value your feedback and I would love to hear from you. Please rate, subscribe and share this episode with those whom you think will profit from this information. Your support means the world to me and it motivates me to keep producing content that adds value to your life. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Big hugs everyone!